Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and uh, have a number of topics that we were going to be uh, discussing uh, or, or talking about today. Uh, we have been discussing them in the network, and then uh, the people that come in contact with uh, us here at the church. And they ask questions and we try to find the answers if we don't, if we haven't already found them and posted them at some of our websites. And so we go through a lot of material to uh, bring you the answers that uh, a lot of other people we just heard in the news just before the show began that an awful lot of evangelical ministers and, and churches and uh, guys who are paid a lot bigger salaries than me <laughs> who have no knowledge of the Bible and uh, they they don't even know what it says uh, much less history and everything else I was quizzing one of my grandsons uh, yesterday on um, what he is learning and his dad was telling him and somebody else was telling him about the Civil War and uh, the flags and uh, it wasn't very long and I had him a little bit uh, inundated with information about why the Confederate flag looked the way it did and and why people were saying that the Confederates uh, were not starting a new government but returning to an old government, which was under the Articles of Confederation, which isn't 100% true, and why there was a problem with them even seceding from the Union because they had every right to secede from the Union at that time. And I explained to them it was the manner in which they were seceding from the Union. They were taking stuff from the federal government that did not belong to the states. They can't go back. You can't go back and get stuff you've given away to the federal government if you want to leave the uh, th- that uh, group of states that were a part of the United States, because and, and you know, this is what a lot of people are just shocked at when I point out the fact that even after the final legalization of the ratification of the Constitution of the United States, because originally it was illegally ratified, uh, and that's accepted in law, that's accepted in the history. But eventually they got around to finally legally ratifying it. And and there's even question about that because there was a certain amount of coercion with the few states that would not ratify it at the beginning. And they'd all signed agreements that they would change nothing unless they all agreed to the change. And here they had two states holding out and they actually put pressure on those states to agree to the Constitution. And now it wasn't everybody in America doing this because it was only a limited amount of people, a very few people that wanted the Constitution of the United States. It was never put to a popular vote. And all the historians I've come across agree that had it been put to a popular vote, it would have been voted against. So the majority of the people 
of America did not want the Constitution. That's just a historical fact. They were opposed to it. And what a lot of the southern states were doing was finally saying, well, that's the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. They hadn't even been around for a hundred years with this Constitution thing. And they wanted to go back to the Articles of Confederation. Because what they feared, what most of the people feared, is that there was too much power being centralized in this United States federal government that was created by the Constitution. A government that was separate from the states in the sense that it was not within the states. This is why they had extra property that they obtained. Another fascinating story where this property came from, session from two different states, eventually only from one because this, some of the property that they session went back. And uh, it was, you know, Washington, D.C. was built on an estate that had belonged to somebody else that evidently sessioned it, too, because there's no record of anybody buying it. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, so there's a question as to what that land is even built on. But that's another whole mystery we won't get into here. We've mentioned it before. There are so many things, tidbits of history, that are just missing from the collective minds of Americans And uh, so much about the Bible that's missing from evangelical Christians, Catholic Christians, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of all the different religions, the Mormon Christians, uh, you know, a lot of people even debate whether Mormons are even Christian. But the reality is these are all uh, sub-faiths. that have come down from whatever happened back then when Jesus Christ was walking around on the face of the earth. I mean, there are a lot of people who even think that Jesus Christ didn't exist. There are people out there writing that the Bible was written by uh, a group of Flavius Romans who uh, wanted to write it to control the population. Well, that is just so historically insane because we know that there was an, literally almost a war against Christians from the beginning. So they they didn't do a very good job if that was what they intended. But I will tell you this, that the interpretation of the biblical text, what was finally accepted in the biblical text uh, that we now have today, because there was an awful lot of writings that existed uh, that were considered Christian writings by many people for thousands of years now, uh, and they were not included in the Bible. And why were they excluded? Was it because they were believed to be false or because the big book was getting pretty big as it was? You have to remember writing. A, if you were handwriting out the Bible, you're not going to get it in a little pocket-sized Bible. <laughs> it's going to be a pretty big book. And uh, a lot of the books in those days were merely scrolls. So uh, the idea of creating this canon, which was kind of the idea of Constantine when Constantine started his church. Because it was very clear that Constantine was starting a different church. And we go into that in some of our articles. But that's not going to be the topic today. But the the reality is we are going to eventually get around and looking at some of the apocryphal writings of the early... Uh, supposed church ministers, some of them martyred. 
Now, we've already looked at Justin the Martyr and, and what he had to say, which he was around 140. We're going to go a little bit earlier in another minister of the time, but uh, we're going to kind of work our way into it, and we're going to also touch on this idea of enmeshment because of the fact that this is where a lot of the cognitive dissonance comes from. I saw an article. I hate looking at the Google News because it is so much brainwashing, the articles that appear there. But I have it on my phone that shows up, and, and occasionally I sw- swipe over to it and see some of the articles. I've got the notifications turned off. Because it's just too depressing to see the American people so brainwashed by this false narrative that is coming from things like the Google News. If that's your source, you better turn that off because they're going to lead you down a road of lies. But uh, I look at it once in a while to see what lie are they telling now. And, and they actually were talking about cognitive dissonance. And uh, they were talking about Americans having this tremendous cognitive dissonance, which is actually true. But their idea of cognitive dissonance was the fact that most people love animals, but about 98% of the people want to eat them, even though they know, know that these animals are raised in inhumane conditions, and etc., etc. Now, I think that uh, a lot of the ways in which they raise animals uh, is probably bad. Uh, but uh, not the animals I eat. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if I didn't eat them from time to time, uh, they wouldn't even exist. They would have all died out because it, I have a symbiotic relationship with uh, cattle and sheep and chickens and they survive because I survive. And... They live for the herd, and I live for the herd. Uh, I live and work and sweat for the herd. I was uh, actually had to drive by the cattle uh, out here on the church property. There's just a handful of cattle that we have out on the church property. Keep the weeds down, the grass down, and uh, and supply us with meat and people that come here with uh, good clean meat. But uh, it's, it was always kind of ranch land before. It's it's desert ground, so that you know most of the acreage is doesn't grow enough to keep a cow alive. But there, the the cows were all laying down, and they were all just chewing their cud, and they're just laying out in the field, sunning themselves. And I, and I'm I'm going along with fencing supplies, and not feeling very well. I've been kind of got some sort of a bug or something, and. Uh, I thought, like, well, they're living the life of Riley, <laughs> but I'm going out there making sure that uh, the fields uh, are are watered and the fences are strong. And another interesting thing about the the church property is it doesn't even have fences all the way around it. Most of the time, we don't even shut the gate most of the time. Uh, so the cows could leave any time they want, but they've got it so good they stay there. But they're alive because we take care of them. They would not survive. The sheep especially would not survive on their own. Uh, the coyotes, the mountain lions, the bobcats would devour them. So the herd lives and lives healthily uh, because the shepherd is taking care of them. Now, they're talking about cognitive dissonance that people are willing to eat these animals while at the same time they say they love animals. Well, if everybody stopped eating animals, 
You would have to get rid. Uh, you, they, all your cattle would look like the cows in India. Skinny things that look like they're on the verge of dying. And actually that's what has happened many times when there's droughts or what have you. Is that uh, thousands upon thousands of the cows just die. Uh, died, you know, uh, starvation, uh, wither away and die. Because of the fact that nobody can afford to take care of them. And that's just a waste of the natural resources. It, I guess, goes back into the soil eventually, but it's a waste. There's, in nature, there's this, you know, I, I know this from my Boy Scout manuals that I was reading some over half a century ago. That, uh, life has this cycle that everything is kind of dependent one upon the other. And that symbiotic relationship is very important. But now to make this break of what about the cognitive dissonance? Well, the same people that are saying this on Google News, talking about us being cognitive, and it's it, according to their statistics, it's the vast majority of the people are willing to uh, eat animals. They like animals, but they are also willing to eat animals. They're maybe not willing to eat their dog, but maybe if they got hungry enough, they'd even eat their dog. But uh, the reality is, is that those same people are absolutely content in taking a bite out of their neighbor so that they can just be comfortable, so they can have free stuff. You see, because... That same Google News is advocating socialism. It's advocating literally today that it's gone so far to advocate communism. Uh, which killed millions and millions of people. It shipped them off to camps to die. And to fend for themselves. And that's that, that horrible. And while they said they did it. For the good of the people. We've seen this for the last two years now with COVID. Uh, it appears the data that uh, uh, COVID vaccinations may be killing more people than COVID ever killed. Now that that's an extreme statement, but the data keeps coming in. Uh, but... We The same Google News doesn't always give you the actual data. They give you opinions. And, uh, and of course, we've already explained how, you know, top virologists, top scientists have said that the, uh, uh, you know, fact-based uh, science and the institutions we have to monitor that have been hijacked by political agendas. And uh, those top scientists who wrote the book on virology, they're not allowed to go on to the news. <laughs> you won't catch them on Google News. Uh, they, they're too fact-based. And But you'll have, there's always some scientist who's willing to go along to get along or go along to get subsidies, etc., or to make millions of dollars. I mean, Fauci is the highest paid uh, from what I understand, he's one of the highest paid government employees in America. And he's not science-based, although he says that, and the media lets him get away with saying that. But what we're going to talk about is 
not only that cognitive dissonance and that we're going to touch on enmeshment uh, again. We're going to keep going back to that topic and eventually we're going to hopefully grab an understanding of exactly how that enmeshment leads to the cognitive dissonance so that in evangelical ministers think they're actually preaching Christ when they're actually preaching the absolute opposite of Christ. When people think that they are loving their neighbor when they're actually devouring their neighbor and being devoured themselves. They're taking a bite out of their neighbor. That they think they are saved and they are actually in condemnation according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. How can such cognitive, distinctively different ideas exist in the same mind? Well, it is a product, at least in part, in this idea of enmeshment. And enmeshment, enmeshment as part of relationships, is sometimes referred to as... In its abusive state, emotional incest, because it's a term that's used usually in relationship to families or members of family and the type of relationship that families have, you know, like mother and son or mother and daughter or father and wife and and mother and all these different relationships. They have certain roles that they play, traditionally have played, for thousands and thousands of years. And when you begin to enmesh those roles and begin to assert an emotional control over, usually it's like parents over children. Although I've seen in some cases the children seem to be doing more of the controlling than the parents. (laughs) But the weakness of the parents is part of that leverage, uh, which is what we're going to also talk about when we deal with hierarchy. Everybody thinks that hierarchies, uh, this hierarchy of power in the family, you know, husband being the father of the household, he's supposed to be the head of the house, and the wife is supposed to be obedient to him, but he's supposed to be caring for her as Christ cared for the church. This is what the Bible is telling us. And I've seen people arguing over this, and I thought, like, the only reason you're arguing over it is because you're not listening to the whole story when Paul says that. Paul says that the husband is supposed to be to the wife as Christ was to the church, and of course Christ was to the church where he sacrificed himself for the welfare of the church and the welfare of the people. He sacrificed himself. If husbands were doing that, good wives would have no trouble in obeying their husbands because they know that all their choices and decisions are based upon that desire for the welfare and the righteous welfare of their family. And they won't be working against one another. They will be working with one another. Because the tempering factor is love of others. Not love of self. Love of others. You love others as much as you love yourself. This is part of the essential equation of Christianity. 
And what we have today often in churches is that people not only love themselves a little bit more than they love their neighbor in a variety of ways, which we're going to see when we look at this cognitive dissonance, why they're taking a bite out of one another while they think they actually love one another. And we're also going to see that the these relationships, not only within the family, but within groups of families, in congregations, and in churches, is actually causing an enmeshment with ideas. Because that's really what a lot of people are worshiping. They're not worshiping God. They're worshiping the idea of God. And the idea of God is plucked from the tree of knowledge. They go and they study a little bit of the Bible, or they study a little bit of history, or they study a little bit of religions, and they like what they're studying or seeing. They think they're right about it, and they love being right. So they worship the image of Christ that has been created in their minds. The image of God that has been created in their minds. And they that is literally idolatry, but they don't see it as that way. They say, we believe in Jesus. And so when I come along and start pointing out, you know, well, you say, and this is what I did in the seminary. I didn't even know I was doing it. I just was asking questions. They were saying that this is so and this is so because they said this in the Bible. Or somebody else said this. Some teacher, uh, you know, ancient teacher said this. And I would say, well, if they said this and they said that and they said this, then why that doesn't fit? And they they didn't like my questions. And I've been asking those questions for uh, over a half a century now. A uh, lot more than a half a century now. And uh, I'm still asking them and I can go up and, and I'd like you guys to learn to ask those questions. Because when you ask these questions, uh, it begins to cause people to take another look at the idols they worship. And we're going to actually take a look eventually, hopefully before the end of this program, at a conversation... Between uh, Trajan, the emperor of Rome, and uh, someone he is about to martyr, that he is about to have put to death. Now, I'm not 100% sure that this conversation is accurate, but that is what comes down to us through ancient manuscripts. But, you know, we don't have original copies, and there's always somebody debating. Like I said, there's people debating that Jesus didn't even exist. Which is, you know, it's shocking that that's even a debate. It's not a very good debate because there's so much evidence that he did exist and that he was real. Exactly how real he is uh, in history isn't as important as how he is real to you and how your image of Jesus conforms to who he really was and what he was really saying. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to keep coming back to that. But we'll take a break first. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, anyway, uh, there's one thing I do want to take a side trip into a little bit, and it's going to be a part of what we're going to be talking about is joining the network. And 
what the early church was above all else, I think you could say, was a network. And we're going to talk more and more about that. We're going to touch a little bit on that. And it was a network because Christ commanded that his ministers, his disciples, who were the student ministers, were to make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they, they use the word tens, hundreds, and fifties, and thousands, uh, in this reference, and we see it all the way back in Jethro, uh, where they're talking about this same idea. And the question came up that, well, so what's the, with the 50s? And so anyway, I, I didn't get the question when it first came up, uh, because like I said, I've been under the weather and not checking all my emails. Um, but uh, I've, I since have looked into it even more so, and there's a number of different reasons, and it, it's a question that's come up. And what I've realized is what we need is a diagram that shows exactly how this works. And it's kind of, I don't know what I'm going to use to make the diagram, but uh, I realize that it's kind of like the, you know, networks in computers that we have an uh, Internet. And you can send out a search on the Internet and it will go to some site that is pre-categorized. All the websites goes out and looks at all the websites and and it will find you hundreds and hundreds of different uh, places where you can connect on that particular topic that you asked a question about. And it does this by going through little places all over the country and accessing these websites and the information that you're looking for and brings it into the, you know, where you can get access to it. Well, that's a little bit like what the network of the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands was doing. And if you just look at it from a practical standpoint and, and this idea of the same kind of network, which is often called tens, hundreds, and thousands. It was used by uh, the people, the Saxons in Great Britain. It was used by the Gauls. It was used by the Germans. The Teutons were using it. And uh, during the uh, invasion of France by the Germans and even in the German underground that was fighting against Hitler's totalitarianism and other fascists, uh, in Italy, they use that same pattern of tens, hundreds, and thousands to operate the underground. And so that's been a social structure. And I can actually, you know, if you go to our website at Preparing You, you can we actually show you how that same pattern was used all the way back in the days of Nimrod. And so the idea that Jethro came up with something uniquely belonging to Jethro is not really the case. Uh, Jethro was simply seeing his son-in-law, Moses, being worn out by the people who were constantly coming to him to solve all their issues and conflicts. This is this what happens when you try to create a free society. And you don't have people running around exercising authority one over the other. Is that they have to learn to resolve the conflicts between people on their own. Right now, the biggest problem is getting people to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because people are always finding conflicts with, oh, I don't want to sit with that guy. 
Oh, I don't want to sit with that guy. Oh, I don't want to sit with those people. They have some strange ideas that are conflict with me. And so they don't want to sit down. But Christ said we had to make them sit down. Well, how do you make them? Because he also told us we could not exercise authority one over the other. Well, of course, what is the glue that binds the kingdom together? And it's the structure of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom and the prohibitions of Christ and the prohibitions of Moses and the prohibitions of Abraham that bring about the bonds of the kingdom of God, which are righteous bonds. They're not contractual bonds because we know in the Ten Commandments we're not supposed to make covenants with them or their gods. And I mention that because we're going to, that's going to come into play. You, I mean, how do you make covenants with some stone god or wooden god? Somebody makes a statue. You know, I mean, like they made the golden statue of uh, the calf when they were, you know, when Moses was gone up the mountain and they were all afraid that everybody was going to take off in different directions and they made this golden calf. And so... Could you make a covenant with that golden calf? I mean, like, he just got hooves, right? How do you sign the agreement? <laughs> if you broke off the gold from your ears, uh, which is your wealth, that's what they're basically telling you. If they, you broke that wealth off and you put it into the, deposited it in the golden calf, you had an agreement. You had a you now you had a connection to that golden calf. Your gold was in it, and so you own a share of the. You know, still if you go to the stock market. You know, when they talk about a bull stock market. There it is, a big, big, huge bull. They don't make it out of gold, but you buy stock. You have an agreement in that stock market. Well, if you. When you put your gold in, because Aaron knew the arts of the temple, when you put your gold into the calf, there was an agreement. You were now part owner of the golden statue. Didn't have controlling interest, but you had some value or some sort of agreement in doing that. We weren't supposed to do that. And eventually the Ten Commandments tells us not to make those covenants. Not to, and Moses was displeased with the people because they had taken the wealth that he had saw to it that came into their hands. They had no gold in Egypt. They didn't have any gold in their purse in Egypt. That, that all went to the Pharaoh. Only the Pharaoh could own gold. And, and maybe some of his, the people that you know, he hired, they could have some gold, but they had it by his permission because all the gold belonged to the Pharaoh. And that had been that way since the famine. And so nobody had any gold coins in their purse. They might have had some scarabs. Uh, they might have had some clay tokens in, in their uh, purse that they used for spending. They did a lot of trade. But this idea of having money in your own pocket that you were responsible for, they weren't used to that. And they've only been out in the wilderness for a short period of time, and they, they're afraid that if they're attacked, everybody's going to flee over the hills. So they said, well, let's do what they do in all the other city-states, take our gold, because that's the wealth that we have, put that into a single depository, 
And then nobody's going to flee. Not only that, but nobody's going to do business with you unless you do business with other Israelites. Because you don't have any money to trade with. And so that was that was a way in which to bind the people together. And it was used by many city-states. We've covered that. You can go read our article at Preparing You on Golden Calf. And uh, that's not the way we're supposed to do it. So what does bind us together? It's a voluntary society bound together by love, not by contract. We have certain basic values, certain basic morals, but we're bound together by love. That's that's the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God, when Abraham was discovering it, that was the kingdom of God when Enoch was explaining it. That was the kingdom of God when Moses was trying to tell the people that it is a society bound together by love. In order to do that, you also have to have an element of humility and an element of forgiveness, which is why Christ is talking about these things all the time. But the modern church doesn't, it tells you to forgive, but they don't tell you how far that goes. They tell you to love one another, but they don't tell you how far that goes, at least how far it went in the early church. And that's some of the things that we're going to be covering as we look at this. And the reason they can get away with you not understanding that and not being in harmony with God on this subject You might be in harmony with the God that you've created in your mind, but not in harmony with the real God of heaven, the real Christ. And we're going to show you that. And I'm kind of sneaking into it, working into it slowly, because it's a shocker to realize how far away from the kingdom that you've actually gone. And uh, how far away from the teachings of Jesus Christ you have actually fallen. And a lot of this has taken place in the last 70 to 100 years, just during my own lifetime. But uh, the reality is we've been coming this way for at least a thousand years in a structure where the structure of society was being altered. And we can go through that history, but not in this program. (laughs) But uh, the reality is is that what we want to see is how the relationships with one another in a community, in a voluntary community, will protect us from this enmeshment. Now, we talked about enmeshment of, you know, family members, where they lose part of their identity because of the way in which the relationship does not respect boundaries. Well, the same type of enmeshment on slightly different level take place in a community when we don't respect the boundaries of the individual families. And when we assert the boundaries of the individual families, there's a process of enmeshment where our thinking is actually altered. The same as a child's thinking is altered when he, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I read a story about, uh, and it was in the news, about uh, t- 
two uh, lesbian women living together and they adopt a son. And the son is being raised, a baby, and he's being raised. And supposedly they're not instilling in him their values or their way of thinking. But all of a sudden, you know, when he's around, I can't remember now, five or six years old, he decided to let his hair grow long. And they they talk about, uh, there was a commercial actually presenting this, where they were so elated when he put on his first dress and was admiring himself in the mirror. And uh, I was thinking, somebody at uh, the Daily Wire, uh, Michael Knowles, I think it was, did a piece on this, how this is just child abuse. That they are projecting into that child the idea that he... A boy thinks that he's a girl. And they're saying, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. It's just a coincidence that of all the children that we adopted, (laughs) we could have adopted, we just so happened adopted a child that was naturally born gay. No. that This is enmeshment. They are not allowing him, by the pressure of this emotional relationship, to mature as a young man. They are actually influencing him to become this guy who thinks that he's a transgender. Now, in this case, it's it's really obvious. Uh, because, you know, he didn't inherit this. That this is this is this is a classic case of enmeshment. And this is what's taking place. And it's considered child abuse in psychology. It's considered emotional incest because they are barring his ability to mature according to his actual physical nature and emotional nature. And they're doing it through emotional pressure because they will they will show approval of him. I remember, I've told this story before, when I was seven years old, my dad took me in to his office uh, at home. He had an office at home and uh, went through a case that he was going through all the different aspects of the case involved FBI and firemen and special investigators and arsonists and and all these different people of professional nature and telling this fascinating story of how they uncovered what was going on and how they caught the guy and how they were now being tried. And I'm seven years old and I just find it fascinating, probably mostly because I'm getting all this attention from my father, who is often away at work. And so, you know, a young boy, this is exciting. You know, my father was a giant. (laughs) <laughs> I was, what was I, three feet tall, three and a half feet tall. My father was over six foot tall. And uh, it's what I refer to as my giant. That's the way a little child looks at his father or his, his mother, is that uh, the, these he was raised in this land of giants in his, uh, amongst his parents. I remember when my first son first saw... Uh, got the opportunity, he wasn't even walking yet, but he saw another child walking around that was about his size. He was absolutely fascinated with the fact because he'd been around us so much. 
He hadn't had it. Well, there was another kid he got to play with, but never like like this. But uh, he, of course, he like I said, he wasn't even walking yet. And but other than that, he was being raised by these two giants called his mother and his father. And this has a tremendous influence and draw to a child, just naturally, and that's good. But as the child grows, we have to give that child room to grow. And if you're a strong personality, you have to step back and choose to give them the opportunity of making choices for themselves without your influence. Back to my dad's story. When he was all done with his story, he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I thought for a moment in my dyslexic, uh, superactive brain at the time. And I, 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 I kind of looked to the side and I thought, what do I want to be? And I came back and said, a sheep herder. I, I still to this day cannot tell you where that came from because it just came to me. Why? I don't know. I'd never even seen a sheep as far as I can remember. Never seen a sheep herder as far as I can remember. But that's what came out of my mouth when he asked me the question. I turned to some place inside myself and I asked what I should be. And that's what came. Well, my dad didn't say yell at me or anything. But I was very sensitive and I could tell that there was a disapproval appearance face that that was not the answer he was looking for but the reality is so the next time he asked me the same question a year later i i didn't give him that answer i came up with a different answer (laughs) but but, uh, my dad gave us the opportunity whether he was a strong personality or not to me he was because he was my dad and so he i knew that i talked about this at my dad's funeral to my all my family members and brothers and everything they asked me to speak is that you know we have a lot of variety of ideas a lot of independent personalities in our family because our dad allowed us to develop those individual personalities uh, my dad had values, and he tried to instill them in us, but he also had the value of the fact that he wanted us to mature and grow in the light of God, in the light of truth. And he did not want to manipulate us. Unfortunately, a lot of parents are being frustrated, tra- traumatized in their own life. They're trying to live their life through their children. And we see this sometimes very obviously. What we don't always see is the subtlety of this and how it's not only in parent-child relationships but in neighbor relationships, in congregational relationships that we are trying to somehow or other exercise our influence over the choices of others in an unhealthy way. And how do we guard against that? Well, it is the Holy Spirit that allows us to do that. And some of the virtues that you will cultivate in doing that is humility and forgiveness. And you want to be giving that right of choice to other people. Why? Because that's the nature of God. So we're going to take another little step back and look. God in the beginning created man, breathed life into man. And the very first thing that he does 
is give man the right to choose between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever that means. The point is, is he wanted us to have choice. You want your children to have choice, limited choice, but that limitation of that choice is based on love and the opportunity and capacity of the child to make those choices. I mean, obviously, you don't let a five-year-old make choices as to, yeah, you want to go downtown? Yeah, go ahead, go downtown, walk through the traffic. (laughs) You say, no, you can't play near the road (laughs) because you're five, period. Yeah, you can't you can't go play on the cliff because uh, you could fall. And so we're going to restrict you now. But as you grow, we're going to let you make more and more choices uh, on your own. And so that's there's a constant influence that way. Well, it's the same way in society and in a congregation that you have to give other members in your congregation right to choose. Now there may be some limitations to that. And you get to speak to your children. And you get to speak to the members of your congregation. If you see them doing things that you think is destructive or dangerous to them or to anybody else, you get to speak to them. But you have to give them choices. So let's now shift out of that because we're talking about a free society and the relationships of how a free society interacts with one another with a certain limitation of morality, whatever that is, and we'll touch upon that again. But also a freedom to make choices. Every family, the only autonomous thing that is within a congregation is the autonomy of the individual families. Within the individual families, the parents have to determine the amount of autonomy that they will extend to their individual children. Like, you gotta be home tonight by 10 o'clock. Or you gotta be home tonight by 9 o'clock. As a matter of fact, you over there, you can't even go out. <laughs> so, this is the restrictions, and you, but you have to do it with wisdom, or you will create enemies instead of adults. And so anyway, back to the idea of congregations. The church is the called out. The church in the wilderness was the Levites. The church in the New Testament were the disciples of Christ, the ministers, the 120, the 70. This was the church. This was the called out. Who were called out to what? To serve the tabernacles of the congregation. That's what the Levites were to serve, the tents of the congregation. They handled the big tabernacle, but it also says... The tabernacle of the congregation, which is the individual tabernacles, the individual tents, same word, of the congregations of an entire nation that is organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And tens, hundreds, and fifties, and thousands. And we'll get to that fifties. So that this is a free society. There are no compelled taxes in this society. If you own gold... If you own silver, if you own land, it's your gold, it's your uh, silver, it's your land. Nobody can tax you on it. There's no income tax. You own all your labor. You produce it. Uh, it's yours. But you still know 
because there are dangerous things out in the world that you have to support the whole community because this is where the binding comes together. If there is a need, you go and help that individual. Well, you can't always go because you do, your sheep will get lost on the desert. So you send somebody else and he's going to take time out of his day to go and help this family or that family or this group of family. And you, you have to, you know, the laborer is worthy of his hire. So you give him some funds so that he has the means by which to help them. And also his needs are covered as well. But it's a voluntary society. There's no compelled taxes in the kingdom of God. There is only caring about one another, loving one another, and with the hope that that love comes back to you if you need help. So anyway, that's that's the basic thing. So then how does that fit into our reality? We'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So what we're trying to do is we're going to take a look at the reality around you, the reality in the world today. The news in the world today, the good news, the bad news in the world today, and try to remove some of those obstacles that keep us from seeing the world as clearly, seeing the truth as clearly as we should be seeing it. Because that's where Jesus talks about the blind leading the blind, and they both falling into a ditch. Well, if you have evangelical ministers, as we heard on the news just before the program began, uh, don't even know what's in the Bible, and they're admitting it, uh, then how in the world are they going to be your guide? Because they're blind to what they're guiding you to understand or to find out. And I was in a conversation with people in a, kind of a home church group um, that advocates home churches. And uh, I was shocked at how blind some of the people are on that group to the basic fundamentals of what Christ was saying. You know, how are we supposed to be binding ourselves together? They talk about, they like home churches because of the fact that they have this intimate relationship. But it's an emotional relationship. It's not necessarily a spiritual relationship. And that's one of the things about emotion is it can actually uh, appear to be a substitute for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an emotional spirit. It's not about emotion. It's not about a generate. I mean, you can go to uh, see voodoo uh, ceremonies where people all get around and they get emotional and they speak in tongues and and they supposedly have a spirit, but it's, it's almost demonic. Uh, and in some cases, it flat out is demonic. And this has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with what the early church was doing. And uh, so, what we're trying to do is get you to see what the world is trying to keep you from seeing. That there is a cognitive dissonance in the people. They're holding ideas in their mind. They're not compatible with Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ, while they think 
they believe in Jesus Christ. So that's a difficult job to do because as soon as we get to some of those significant areas of thought, it becomes uncomfortable for the people. I'm not trying to prove anybody wrong. I'm trying to lead them to what's right. And it's just like if people sit in darkness, which they are sitting in darkness again. They were sitting in darkness at the time of Christ. And Christ was bringing this light into the world. And people were beginning to see. And some people hated the light. And so therefore they hated Christ. Goes with the job description. But I'm not trying to incur your hate. I'm trying to bring light to release you from the demons dwelling in the darkness. To give you sight where you did not see so that neither you nor I fall into a ditch. So that's the, that's the point of the network. And the network only works if you work at networking. And so we created this email network where everybody can join it. But the purpose of joining that network is so that you remain somewhat autonomous. Because anybody can have an email identity, etc. And then we try to connect you, whether you're in Australia or whether you're in uh, uh, New Zealand or South Africa or Texas or Florida or New Hampshire or Michigan... Connect you with other people as close to you geographically as possible. And then you connect on the living network. You join a free assembly, like a meetup, but a little bit more formal, but no contractual bonds. But you actually make some sort of a commitment, personal commitment, that you're going to actually try your hand at caring about these other people as much as you care about yourself. Now, these aren't isolated congregations because they're connected in the same network that Jesus talks about, tens, hundreds, fifties, and thousands. And the same one that Jethro talks about. You're not going to be doing all the things that uh, the people who were following Moses were doing to start out with, but that's the goal. And to understand that, you have to walk the walk. It's kind of like on-the-job training. So, why the tens, hundreds, fifties, and thousands? Again, we're talking about a free society. The early church was a free society. It was persecuted because it was free. People were jealous of it because most of the people at that time, at least in the Roman Empire, were not free. They were, they had to offer support to their government in compelled offerings. And their government was doing all kinds of, like, crazy stuff. Uh, Trajan, who will eventually play out in this story, uh, which we may not get to the whole story until the second show this afternoon, but uh, in this, uh, Trajan is talking to a guy he calls Theophorus uh, that's on this list of people to be persecuted. And that he is talking to him like you, you know, you're not, you're not uh, paying attention to our gods. You're not following our gods. You're not uh, submitting, is signing up for our temple welfare system, which is 
run by the gods. They had, you, you have to remember all, well, remember, most of you have to learn that all the temples of Rome were government buildings. And you signed up for this temple or that temple. You could sign up even under Herod. You could sign up with the Temple of Roma or the Temple of Jerusalem. But you were supposed to be signed up with one or the other. It wasn't compulsory everywhere because there were plenty of people who did not sign up. The apostles had not signed up. Uh, and there were others who did not sign up. But Christ came along and said, you can sign up with us. But if you sign up with us, our ministers do not exercise authority one over the other. They're going to provide the same welfare that you could get from the temple. The same free bread that you could get from the temple of Roma or the temple of uh, Parthenos. Because they were giving out free bread to the needy of society. But your offerings will be remain free will offerings. Your sacrifices to our network of charity that care that it was a religious network. You have to realize the Bible tells you in the New Testament <laughs> okay it's right there in the text what religion is. It only mentions religion a few times so it wouldn't be very hard to look it all up. But uh, like James one twenty seven, religion that is pure in other words pure religion is undefiled before God, the Father, is this, that you visit, and this visit means you're not just visiting them to say hi, but you're visiting them to take care of them, to provide for them, to offer any assistance they may need. You visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Or unspotted from the world. And the word world there is the actual Greek word for constitutional order or system of government. So you're taking care of the widows and orphans without the help of the world. The government. Why? Because the government is providing uh, for the needy the free bread of Rome or the free bread of the Temple of Roma. Uh, that Herod started, or the free bread of the uh, temple in Jerusalem that was run by the Pharisees. Those, All those temples would provide for the needy, for the blind, for the uh, widows, for the orphans, for people who fell on hard times and didn't have enough family members to help them out. But the, the aid that they offered was making the word of God to none effect. Because the sacrifices that went in to provide that aid was making the word of God to none effect. Because under the Pharisees, under Herod, it became a compelled offering. Under ancient Rome, it was not. It was a free will offering. But under Rome, under the Caesars, it was a compelled offering. It was a tax. It was a tribute. You had to pay in if you were a member. Christians did not join those temples. They were considered paganistic. Uh, they, they considered the spirit of forcing your neighbor to, co- to provide for your needs by men who exercise authority one over the other to be in a, a form of enmeshment 
that stifles spiritual growth within the individual. The individual growth of the individual. And enmeshes your personality with the rest of society. So that when the rest of society goes crazy, you go crazy too. You know, kind of like, uh, what, what do they call that, uh, you know, mass uh, uh, hysteria. Uh, and where everybody be, kind of becomes perfect savages. And I use that phrase, perfect savages. Those of you who listen on a regular basis will know where I'm getting that. And... Uh, and I recommend that everyone listen on a regular basis. Of course, that's what everybody who's on the Internet does. <laughs> I want you to listen to their shows. You can listen to our podcast every week. If you join the network, go to preparingyou.com and join the network. In your particular area, if you're in Texas, join the Texas group. Whatever state you're in, whatever country you're in, join those groups. You will get a link to the podcast. You can also, if you have podcasts on your phone, most people have a smartphone. They can get podcasts anytime they want. Just look up Keys to the Kingdom with Brother Gregory and you can sign up and listen on a regular basis. And we're going to be giving you, in every show, we try to give you some more pieces of the puzzle. We also paint where they fit in relationship to other pieces of the puzzle that we've already mentioned. And so that you begin to get this clearer and clearer picture of what Jesus was doing, which was setting the people free. If you were a Christian, you didn't have to wear masks. <laughs> you didn't have to get uh, vaccinations because they didn't come up with those yet. Because your government was not a part of the world. And you, you were not going to be... And we're going to point out some prophecies of some of these guys to show that they knew where you were headed. And you've been heading this way for a long time. But anyway, this is what religion was, was taking care of the needy of your society without using those compelled offerings, those compelled sacrifices. This is why Christ said the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect because the Corbin of the Pharisees, the sacrifice that was going to the temple under the Pharisees were compelled offerings. They were forced offerings. They were no longer a free society. If you live in uh, South Africa or Brazil or Mexico or the United States or England, if you have to contribute to one of the government buildings or government institutions of your nation, to provide for the needy of society, if it's a forced offering, you may have to provide, but you're not a free person anymore. When you were in the bondage of Egypt, 20% of your labor belonged to the government. 20% of your labor in one form or another had to go to the government. And that was called the bondage of Egypt. If you're a member of a government now where a portion of your labor, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% of your labor in one form or another has to go to the government, you're back in the bondage of Egypt. You're not free. You may feel free. You may want to think you're free. You want to imagine that you're free. You want to live the delusion (laughs) that you're free. But it's a strong delusion. You're not free. 
you're back in the bondage of Egypt. I can't get you out of that bondage of Egypt, but I can show you the way to survive if that system ever collapses. And the only way to do it is to follow the ways of Christ. This is what Christ was doing. He was teaching the people how the kingdom of God works, giving them the opportunity to make the choice to go the way of the kingdom, and then they had to actually walk the walk. And then the Holy Spirit, instead of the unholy spirits of all those other pagan systems, would begin to become a part of their life and create bonds between them and their fellow congregants in these free assemblies so that in hope that they might be there for one another in a international network. That's what the church was, an international network. A lot of the home church people, they say, well, the original church was home churches. Then how did Paul know where to go? How did these guys know who to take funds? Paul and Barnabas are taking funds to these other countries, other city-states, all over the Roman Empire, meeting up with people. How were they able to do that? Because they were an international network of charity, a free society. Pentecost, there were people from all over Rome, all over the Roman Empire. In Pentecost at that particular time, people were already hearing about Christ all over the Roman Empire. Paul's uh, half-brothers were Romans. You know, his half-brother and his nephew and nieces and, uh, they were, they were, uh, enmeshed in Rome and in Great Britain and by knowing Paul, they were hearing the gospel. And we, we see where Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds followers of John the Baptist who haven't even heard of Jesus Christ yet. And he tells them and ends up staying there for years teaching at a school they started to do what? To be like real Christians. We have uh, evangelical ministers, pastors, Heads of home churches, heads of orthodox churches, uh, traditional churches, traditional in the sense of following the ways of the false churches of Constantine. They don't understand how and what the early Christians were doing and what they were not doing. They were not taking the free bread of the world. Of the constitutional order and system of Rome. They were not signing up for those benefits at the temple. Because they were provided by forced offerings. And Christ was creating a voluntary society. A a society of free assemblies. The same as Moses was doing. The same as Abraham was doing. Where you still sacrifice. But you chose. You know it says in in the Old Testament. You tie it to the Levite according to his service. It's not automatic. There's no Levites kicking in your door because you didn't give a tithing. And if you see a Levite not doing a good job, you didn't have to tithe to him. If you didn't think he was being of service to the community, you didn't have to tithe to him. So all the power was in the hands of the individuals. 
the, the individual families, because it was families that congregated together. When they said 2,000 got baptized one day, 3,000 the next, uh, they were talking about heads of families getting baptized. And when they got baptized, they were becoming a part of that network of tens, hundreds, fifties, and thousands. So I'm looking at the clock here to see if I need to get... Yeah, let's get the fifties in there. Let's get that out of the way. Why? Ten families come together. That's ten heads of households. There were 5,000 men and their families at the loaves and fishes gathering. You know, where we hear them talking about loaves and fishes and distribution of the loaves and fishes. And they, before they got anything, they had to sit down in this tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So we're talking 20,000, 30,000 people, but 5,000 men and their families. So each family sitting down in groups of 10. So what are the fifties? Well, the fifties are ten groups, or five groups of ten. That's fifty. And they will pick a minister of fifty. And two of those groups, where you have two men who are ministers to fifty, and each of those ten families, groups, they have ministers, so, five of those ministers will get together with the minister of 50. And if it's physically possible, and of course there at that particular event, it was physically possible because they're all in one place, they, that those uh, 50 will get together with another 50 represented by a minister of 50 and a minister uh, you know, five ministers of ten. And then they will, those 100 people represented by ten ministers and two ministers of 50 will pick somebody else to be their minister. Now, what does he do? Is, is this the job of these ministers? You have to understand where, where they're going with this. The job of these ministers is not to tell you what to believe and what to think and how to act and what to do and explain to you every detail of the Bible. The apostles were doing that. The 70 were doing that. The 120 were doing that. And, of course, as you would learn in that network, you could share with one another. But what they were doing is turning isolated little ten-family congregations into an international network of charity. And if, you know, today you could have ten families uh, in a congregation and ten of those congregations together, that's a hundred families, could be a lot of people by that time, a thousand people, could be, you know, five hundred people. Uh, because you're talking children's and wives and all this stuff, um, they could all communicate on Facebook Messenger. <laughs> they could be on a group where they could send a message out and everybody on the group will get it. 
They can do. They can text. They can call each other up with their cell phones. In those days, they couldn't do that, which is why you needed the tens, fifties, because if you have ten families in a congregation, and you have four more congregations like that, you're talking fifty people. Well, they're not living next door to each other. They could be spread out, especially if they live in. Uh, remote desert area like this, you can't hardly see the next house in certain places out here where I was last night. Uh, it, you know, I can only see maybe two lights out on the desert and I can see 30 miles across the desert. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, if uh, uh, the reality is that that distance made it very important to have the 50s. It wasn't. It's not so important now, although I think that it is a good practice. I will call it a religious practice. Because again, now religion is how you take care of the needy of one another. And it may make you a little bit more efficient if you have the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You have to also remember that tithing doesn't necessarily go to support the minister. I mean, he can eat of what is given him. But Paul was not eating of what was giving him. He had every right to do that. But Paul, in whatever religious order he was a part of, was making tents with people like Priscilla and Aquila, who were evidently a part of the 120 in the upper room. They were making tents to support their work. And, of course, when Paul got to Rome, he had his family that was supporting him, his extended family, his Roman half-brother, and his uh, and the uh, half brother's son and his wife, who were royalty. Uh, his the the wife of the son of the half brother of Paul was Claudia, and her brother was Linus, and they're mentioned in the Bible. And she was British. She was from, you know, Saxon. She was from Britain. And and there's a whole story about her. And we tell that at Preparing You. But the point is, is that he didn't have to. He had plenty of people supporting him. He didn't need to take the money that was tied to him and live from it. And 90% of, uh, I actually can say 99% of our ministers do not live on what? Is given them. What is given them is used for the needy of the network. And it's up to them to figure out what that is. In order to do that, you have to have a good communication system. Which is another thing that I was going to bring up is that I've gotten reports that uh, because of United Nations uh, commands and directives, whole websites, the domains have been censored because they're considered terrorists because they're somehow upsetting the status quo. Well, of course, Christians were considered terrorists, not because they were blowing up buildings or anything, but because they were upsetting the status quo. And one of the early Christians that we're going to eventually talk about here, we'll probably do it in the afternoon show, is Ignatius of Antioch who was, of course, in Antioch. And he was called a bishop or overseer there. And he was persecuted. And they wanted to get him out of town. 
fascinating story of how they went about getting them out of town. And we'll have to cover a little bit of that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Okay, well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So just to give you a little bit of brief background, but I really encourage everybody to join the network so you can find out more about these things. Uh, this Ignatius of Antioch, uh, where Antioch is where the Christian community first became known as Christians. That's where the name came from, because they were followers of this Christ, this anointed, this Jesus the Christ. And uh, and so, therefore, they were the first to be called Christians. But they were also called Romeos at one time. Or Romeos had to do with being in possession of your rights, being a free individual. Paul was Romeos. We always hear people talking about Paul being a Roman citizen. No, Paul was not a Roman citizen, which would have been the word queerus, not the word Romeos. Romeos had to been meaning that you were whole in possession of your rights. Anybody who was a centurion was automatically a Roman citizen. But a centurion was not automatically Romeos. That's just the law. If you look this up, do the research, you'd know this. I've done it. And I'm sharing it with you. We have a whole article on Paul, the apostle. Was Paul a Roman citizen? No. A Roman citizen was a subject citizen at that time. But somebody who was Romeos was not subject. He would he could only be tried at law. You couldn't even put him in chains. You couldn't whip him. You couldn't scourge him. And the head of the court comes in and talks to Paul. And says, are you Romeos? He's asking. They translated, are you a Roman citizen? But they're actually using the word Romeos in the text. And he, and he said, because I had to pay a great sum. This is the head of the cohort. He had to pay a great sum for this status of being Romeos. If you were just a centurion, a lowly centurion, you could have got Roman citizenship. But you would not have got Romeos. He had to pay a great sum for that. And he was the head of the court. And so immediately he had Paul unchained because I can't try him. The only one who can try him and, and with any kind of punishment would be, you know, the emperor. And so I'm going to mention it here. When Paul was supposedly tried by a local governor because they brought a charge against him, you know, Agrippa and uh, Felix, he won the case. They realized, hey, this guy's innocent. We're not going to try Charges are dropped. But he appealed to Rome. And people warned him, don't appeal to Rome. You, you won. He says, no, I'm going to appeal to Rome. And people couldn't figure out. And they still, you ask most theologians, why did he appeal to Rome? Well, because if his case, I mean, Christians were being persecuted. We've seen Stephen persecuted. Paul was there when Stephen was executed by stoning. And now Paul has become one of these ministers of the church. And he held the coats for the guys who executed Stephen. But if he appeals this to Rome, you see, back when my dad was trying to 
get me to become an attorney, <laughs> a lawyer, and learn the law. <laughs> and I said I was supposed to be a sheep herder instead. Uh, he had no idea that I began to understand sh- being a shepherd as soon as I understood how the law works. And so now, why is Paul appealing to Rome? He can do that because Paul is Romeos. Not because he had paid a great sum. But he was Romeos by birth because his father was Romeos. He had inherited this great status of being a free man. Because his father was a tradesman in, you know, a, a wealthy tradesman in Cilicio that was not subject to Rome. It had a special treaties back in those days. And so, therefore, I mean, it eventually became subject to Rome. But his father was this Romeos. He was in possession of all of his rights. He was not a subject citizen of Rome. He was not subject to administrative law. A lot of people want to be free of administrative law today. They want to be a sovereign. Well, they're telling you how to get to that point. Now, you may for a while have to... You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's because of past errors. But anyway, we'll get into that somewhere else. The point is, Paul was Romeos, and if he appealed to Rome, he had the right to do that because he couldn't be tried at a local court. He didn't have to be tried. They wanted to drop the charges, but once they had made the charges, now he gets to appeal to Rome. And they even argue that he shouldn't do this. But while he was appealing to Rome, there wasn't a judge hardly in the Roman Empire that is going to take a similar case and take the chances of prosecuting somebody who's a minister of the church established by Christ, the ecclesia established by Christ, and then have the emperor overrule him. Because, see, in those days, if you executed somebody... And you didn't have the right to do that, or it was ruled that that was an improper judgment by the emperor. You could get executed, just like the prison guard. When he thought the prisoners had escaped, he was going to kill himself because it's going to come back and hurt his family. Because they think he took a bribe. But if he's dead, they won't, they won't touch his family. That's just the way it was at that time. If you don't understand that, you don't understand... You know, he wasn't despondent over the fact that, oh, they got away. No, he was protecting his family by killing himself, or at least wounding himself bad enough that uh, that they, they would account him as being overcome. He didn't take a bribe. But they said, don't do it, because we're still here. We don't want you to get hurt. You know, and eventually, he says, if you, they, he wants to become a part of the kingdom, and he says, if you get baptized, you and all your family will be saved. Back to baptism of thousands of people. It's thousands of heads of families getting baptized because they're joining a voluntary community system of religion that is based on free choice. Back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the show, that we have to extend choice to others. What if you're in a congregation and you give 10% to your minister to redistribute it however he wants? He's he's the judge in how he redistributes it. 
This is just the opposite of what you see in most Protestant churches. They all sit on a board and they call themselves elders. <laughs> and then they hire a minister and they tell him what money he gets to spend and what he doesn't get to spend. So they haven't really let go of it. It hasn't been a, they're still in control of it. But in the early church, you tied to your minister according to his service and now he has the right to choose on how to use that and how to help the widows and orphans. He is the God of that choice. He is the ruling judge of that choice. And the reason I say it that way is that you'll eventually understand. Jesus said, Is it not written that ye also are gods? He says this to his apostles. Are they really gods? No, they're ruling judges. That's what the word that he was using meant. But ruling judges over what? Am I ruling judge over you? And do I, is this some sort of a democracy where I can tell all of you what to believe and what to think and what to do? No, I don't have that power. But if you give me something, if you freely give me something, or one of the ministers, you freely give them something, they have a right, if you've really given it up entirely, if it's a burnt offering to you, if you've let go of it, they get to use it whatever way they see fit. Now, if you don't think they're doing a good job, you don't have to give to them anymore. You can give to somebody else. That puts the power remains with you as to what you're going to do. You don't need big buildings or anything. But the power remains with you. And you, of course, are the elder of your family. And therefore, you're the elder in the congregation. Now, I'm using this word elder here for the first time. Not for the first time, but in this particular place, because this is going to play into understanding why this Ignatius of Antioch wrote what he wrote. Because almost every translation I see does not translate the Greek word into elder. It was actually translated into Latin, and then it was translated into English from the original Greek. But... They don't translate it elder. They put in the word presbyter, which is the Greek word for elder. And they talk about elders being councils like the apostles. So, is that a position of power? No. All an elder is, that's an office of the family. See, now, you have a family. And this is why we were talking about enmeshment. You have roles in that family. You have a mother who is also holding another office. Beside, if we call the word mother an office of the family. That has a particular responsibility and role. The mother is also a wife and that has certain responsibilities and a role. And the father, that's an office of the family. But also, husband is an office of the family. So these are overlapping offices, but they are individually described with this word, husband, father, mother, wife. Then we have children. And children have a rank according to age, according to the dictates of the father. (laughs) See, the giant of the family, the head of the family. 
Son, daughter, father, mother, wife, husband are offices of the family. The family is the corporation of God. Where two or more people are gathered together for the purposes of a pre-existing authority. Love one another, procreate. It's not right that man be alone. God created this thing called family. It's created in nature. But for mankind, we see this family as a corporate union. No more twain, but one. That's what a corporation is. Two or more people gather together for a particular purpose as if it is one person. That's what a family is. A congregation is not a corporation. A congregation is a free assembly. You give up no rights. You accept no obligations. You do express some sort of intent of caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself in hopes that your neighbor cares about you in time of need. Not just for your congregation, but because it's an international network for congregations in South Africa, congregations in Australia, congregations in Brazil, congregations in Canada, or even in Texas. That is the nature of the gospel of the kingdom and the kingdom that the gospel is talking about. It is what Abraham was doing, which is why an army could be mustered overnight to defeat five kings. It's what Israel was doing when Israel was able to defeat Malachites and Amalekites. They were able to come together as a military force and defeat these things. They also dealt with famines and plagues and everything else because they were this network of charity. And they also were not constantly inbreeding because they were connected and they kept this connection alive through the feasts. The feast wasn't so important as keeping that connection alive in this international network. Because Israelites did not just live in Israel. Israelites were all over. They were the sea kings. So anyway, I painted a little bit of a picture there, but I'm going to add a little bit more to this picture. And that was what Trajan was doing at the time that Ignatius was supposedly brought to Rome to be thrown to the beasts. You know, actually, when you read a lot of Ignatius, I think the guy had a tremendous sense of humor. You won't get it through most of the translations because everybody puts on their religious hat when they read it. But if you look at it in the Greek, I think the guy was funny. (laughs) I think the guy was, he had a sense of humor. He talks about the fact that he was being taken to Rome by a group of leopards, which was actually Roman soldiers. And there was something mysterious about this. For some reason, it appears that the normal governor could have punished uh, Ignatius in... Antioch. But it doesn't appear that he was punished. He was sent to Rome. Why would he send him to Rome? Well, it was probably because the local governor was out of town. And some legate, legate, you know, a guy substitute, wasn't really the governor, but he was taking over the role of the governor, or he had some sort of position of power. He had Ignatius arrested and taken by Roman soldiers out of Antioch. Now, we'll tell you later on why this was important. 
And, I mean, you will be astounded at how everybody's been playing fast and loose with these guys and their stories so that you do not understand the gospel of the kingdom. And it's all going to come together. So it's going to be a long story. But anyway, so they want to get them out of Antioch because there's too many people joining the Christians and following the way, because that's what Christianity was called, the way in Antioch. And they they wanted to get them out because this was affecting somebody's pocketbook. This is why they crucified Christ. We explain that if you go read and study what we show you about the money changers who were the porters of the temple. When Jesus fired the porters of the temple, his crucifixion was almost sealed at that point. Because the money was not getting in the hands of the guys who were in it for the bucks. And so they had to get this Ignatius out of town because it was affecting somebody's pocketbook. So they had these soldiers. He was arrested and these soldiers were assigned to take him. Antioch is a seaport. They could have loaded him on a ship and got him there in no time whatsoever. But instead, they took him a land route. They may have gone on a couple of ships, but they were zigzagging all over the place. They could have taken a direct route. And to travel by sea was anywhere between 5 and 50 times cheaper than traveling by land. And he's traveling with a bunch of soldiers. And the soldiers are actually going to Christian communities and letting him converse in those Christian communities in private. He's supposedly a prisoner and he's getting to meet with other guys. Send out letters to other guys. And those are the letters that we supposedly have. He sent out six or seven different letters. And they're kind of fascinating once you get to understand what Christians were actually doing. Most Christians today don't know what the early church was doing. So when they read these stories and they hear the rhetoric that he's using, and they don't know the meaning of words at the time, they have depended upon the church of Constantine to translate these documents and tell them what they mean. And the church of Constantine was setting up a hierarchy Now, the word hierarchy in itself is confusing, but the reality is is that we were commanded from the very beginning by Christ that we were not to exercise authority one over the other. We were not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. Ignatius knew that. The elders of their congregations knew that. That's what the appeal was to becoming a Christian. As you would have a social safety net based on faith, hope, and charity instead of the social safety net offered to you by Rome, by the governor of Antioch, by all these other Greek uh, city-states, that you would have a system, a social safety net that could provide welfare, free bread. If you had a real need, not if you were just too lazy to work, but if you had a real need, they could help you out in a way that strengthened you as a family or as a community. And that social safety net was based on charity rather than force. Because if it's based on force, 
It's bringing you back into the bondage of Egypt. If it's based on force, it's based on a covetous practice where you desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor and you're willing to use force to get your neighbor to contribute. That's anti-Christ. That's anti-Christian. That's anti-Moses. That's anti-Israelite. And therefore, we should be anti-Jew today. Although there are some Jews who still do that, there are certainly many Christians who are okay with forcing their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. On this home church group, there was a guy who was pointing out that, no, the fact that the civil government is helping the church with the care of the widows and orphans is showing that the the message of Christ was conveyed to the civil government. No! It's, it's, if you accept that, you're denouncing Christ. Because Christ said it's not to be that way with you. You're not supposed to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. Peter tells you that if you do that, you will become merchandise. Another way of translating merchandise is a human resource. You will become a possession of the state you depend upon for your social safety net. That's why you're in bondage of Egypt again. We were never to go back to the bondage of Egypt. Where our labor belonged to the Pharaoh or to Caesar or to FDR or to LBJ or to Biden. I saw some kids saying, we're a free country. If you live in a country where your social safety net, where your parents are taken care of by the state... So you had to do no more ought for your parents, which is the corp, that was the complaint about the Corbin of the Pharisees. It was making the word of God to none effect because you had to do no more ought for your parents. Why? Because the state's taking care of your parents. The Corbin of the Pharisees was like social security. Now, am I throwing too much out there? Are you going like, whoa, I didn't know he was going to talk about that. No, that's the gospel. That's what it says. He says, because it's causing you to do no more up for your parents. Why? Because you say, go to the temple if you have a need. Because the temple is taking care of all the social welfare. But the Corbin, the sacrifice, that's what Corbin means, the sacrifice of the Pharisees is making the word of God to none effect because it's forced. It's not free will like it says in the Old Testament. Ben Shapiro should figure this out. Ben Shapiro actually has touched on it. I see him walking around the elephant in the room. I hope eventually he makes all the connections. Uh, They're certainly creating a network, but not a network like Christ. Not even the network like Moses. But he sees more than some of these evangelical ministers out there. But anyway, the important thing is what you're seeing now. You, you need a social safety net because bad things happen. It rains on the just and the unjust. If you want somebody to be there for you when you need help, you have to be there for somebody else. You don't join a congregation to get help. You join a congregation to be of help to others in a, a good way, in a way that strengthens them. You don't want to enmesh your personality, your 
limitations, your boundaries with other people's boundaries, because if you do that, their boundaries will enmesh with yours. You have to give them choice if you want to maintain choice. If you've created a society where you've taken choice away from your neighbor, you do not live in a free society. Because as you judge, so shall ye be judged. You see how we're connecting the dots here? Now, some of you are going like, this guy doesn't make any sense. But some of you might be seeing it. Well, what Trajan was seeing, because Trajan had just been in Antioch. Is, and he'd been there because he had just defeated the Dacians, or Dacians, uh, which is uh, Indo-European uh, inhabitants from Dacia. And uh, the, their subgroup of the Thracians kind of thing, but you don't need to know all that. But the point is he had just defeated them. And now he was going to celebrate that defeat by moving tons of earth to other places but we'll have to talk about that later and but he was going to need money to do that and somehow Ignatius was causing a loss of money why was that so anyway but that's going to be the rest of the story we'll save that for the program this afternoon until then peace on your house and may God be with you God bless You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.